This episode of Rights Up was recorded at the end of 2019, in the midst of ongoing protests in Chile. As a result, the conversation was very much of that moment. But in spite of the delay on our end getting this interview out to you, we think you'll still find the discussion relevant and thought-provoking. When the dust begins to settle after a wave of popular unrest, what should happen next? Thanks for listening. Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Natasha Holcroft-Emmis. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Nicolas Espejo-Yaksik, researcher at the Centre for Constitutional Studies at the Supreme Court of Mexico, children's rights consultant for UNICEF in Latin America, and a visiting fellow at Exeter College in the University of Oxford. In recent weeks, parts of Chile have descended into violent unrest. A rise in subway fares in the Chilean capital of Santiago sparked the first protests, but things have escalated quickly. Demonstrations are now countrywide and challenge broader social issues, such as the increased cost of living, privatization, and growing inequality. Protesters have clashed with security forces, people have been killed, and 2,300 people injured. 7,000 people have been arrested, Arising out of the protest is a proposal of constitutional change. Chile's constitution, originally brought in under the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet in 1980, has already been amended several times. In light of the recent unrest, politicians have agreed to call a national referendum on the creation of a new constitution. Today we will be discussing the protests, the possibility of constitutional change, and the impact on children's rights in Chile. Dr. Espijo, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Perhaps we could start by talking about the reasons behind the widespread unrest in the country at the moment. What factors have caused the situation in Chile to escalate in the way that it has? Well, I think there are threefold causes for for this. First is that although Chile has achieved a great success in reducing poverty from 40% to 8%, and a large social mobility has taken place in the region. It's one of the highest uh, rates for that. Inequality is quite marked feature of Chilean society. Actually, it's one of the of the worst if you look at uh, countries with high income and, and middle income countries. And that has created for the last, I would say, maybe 25 years or 20 years, uh, a sustained pressure from people who pass from poverty to middle income situation to be more aware about what they need and to be more aware about the social inequalities that have been uh, marked progressively within the Chilean society. So one is, I would say, is, uh, income inequality and social inequality. Secondly, I think there's something more cultural in a way, which is related to the kind of feeling of permanent abuse and humiliation by the basically by the market in a way and by the political class so in the first uh, sense i think there's a marked feeling that chilean neoliberal economy is extremely uh, helpful benevolent 
towards uh, companies, bank, pen- private pension systems, uh, private health system, quite indulgent. But when it comes to the daily lives of Chileans, they are really pressed to to pay what they have to pay, high interests. When there's a case of uh, abuse in the market, very mild answer from the criminals and civil system. And th- this has created a kind of feeling of uh, lack of protection, basically, from uh, the more the most powerful uh, within the society. And also politically, a progressive detachment for political class. I think this is why maybe these two trends are, are observable around the world. It's not only about Chile. Uh, but a, a quiet distance from the political class, which has in turn make, made more difficult at this moment to manage the political crisis. And thirdly, something that emerged after demonstrations arised, which is that the, there's a group of people, some related with drug dealers, uh, and there are also, uh, I would say, a considerable group of young people mainly who feel completely detached from society. They, they have nothing to lose. And these two groups of people are committing a lot of uh, violent acts, looting supermarkets, even hospitals, the subway stations. And this group of people is not in the same track of the majority of people who wants uh, political and social change, but uh, the state has not been able to answer to this social security issue. And this in turn has increased the feeling that we are in a problem, that the government is inefficient and led, sadly so, to also to very marked human rights violations by the police force. If we just unpack a few of the different factors, you mentioned income inequality playing a big role in the unrest. Why in particular is that such a prominent issue in Chile? Well, it is uh, particularly prominent because the Chilean model, both economic and constitutional, was shaped during Pinochet's regime in order to facilitate uh, neoliberal economic policies. There has been attempts and several measures that have tried to decrease the level of uh, autonomy of the market. But still, uh, it's a system that is created, designed and protected by both constitutional rules and, I would say, institutional practices that uh, assure that basically the market will have a vast freedom to operate with a very, very low incentives to act according, according to the law. So there are many cases in which there has been collusion, for example, in prices in several sensitive sectors where the CEOs of those companies have been, uh, even in one very famous cases, or case of uh, f- uh, illegal financing of political parties, the sentence was basically to take a course of ethics at the university. So imagine that someone who, in the context of a very harsh use of criminal law for stealing, they have to suffer the consequences of the system while they are looking at these very powerful people, well-connected, that basically get rid of uh, what they are doing. No, So uh, I think that there's uh, the particularity of the Chilean system is that it was very well designed and enclosed to allow the uh, neoliberal policies to operate substantively, make it extremely difficult to modify it. So all the key rules that you want to change in the constitution have a very extremely difficult quorum to be, to be modified. And this has created perfect conditions to sustain these policies at their core. No? So all the changes 
even if important, I don't think they have challenged the same uh, basic understanding that was designed with uh, Pinochet and, and their economists in the, in the 80s, and that in a way were accepted also by the left, left center for, for many years. I wonder if this market model is what lays the foundations in a way for the privatization which has become an issue uh, in the recent in recent times privatization of services like education and healthcare has been reported to be one of the factors in people protesting could you tell us a bit about how the privatization of these kinds of services affects chileans on a day-to-day basis well, one thing that is very particular from Chile that is kind of a laboratory of uh, privatization. So while many states are facing just now privatization, we did it in the 80s when we did it through a, a, a military regime, which facilitated the imposition of this policy. Otherwise, it would be more, much more difficult if you would have democracy or Congress, an active Congress, to try to stop this, these policies. So they basically were imposed as a... Um, as a test of neoliberal policies in all fields of social life. And actually, if you look at closely at Chile the last 30 years, actually, there's a process of deprivatization in a way, but still insufficient. Now, the impact is very clear. Um, and I think maybe some, some manifestations first. Uh, even if income in Chile, Chile is now along with Uruguay, the only two high income countries in Latin America, but the cost of living is extremely high, basically because you have to pay a lot from several areas in life. And where reform has taken place, for example, in public health or in terms of public education, the gap between the quality and a speediness to access those services is very sharp. So even if there's uh, advancements on that, the, the, the feeling is that if you want to get want to have good access to basic services, well, then you have to pay a, a high price. And the level of income through wages is, has not coped with the extremely high level of profits that have been made by these institutions in health and pensions, for example. So we have a very, very strong crisis thinking in the future pensions that uh, Chileans will receive, while the private pension system has one of the highest rates of profit in the market. So the, the feeling is that this is good business. It might be good instruments, uh, financial instruments, but they don't serve the purpose uh, that uh, were originally designed and was promised to Chilean people that it will be a more efficient and more effective as well way of uh, covering that. So the, on the daily life, high rates of, of debt, of individual and private debt, uh, and also with uh, uh, an experience that if they are not able to cope with these uh, commercial obligations, then they will be left behind accessing a public system which has a considerable a difference in terms of equality of services in education, health, and pensions at least, just to mention three key sectors. One of the things that societies tend to use and hope will address some of these issues are human rights laws to try and keep things fair and equal. Was it the case that there was a failure of human rights laws in Chile to address these issues? And is that what lit the touch paper for the unrest in the country, do you think? That's well, an interesting question. I think it it has some some of that in, at two levels. I would say the first level is that the Chilean constitution 
that was designed for the purpose of, as I just mentioned, is extremely weak in terms of social rights, for example. So even if some social rights are in the Constitution, uh, formally recognized, there are no constitutional guarantees to enforce those rights. Or you could only enforce them insofar as they affect uh, one civil and political right, for example, your right to uh, private property or due process. So it's, uh, it's very, we have a very weak constitutional system in terms of social solidarity. And we never faced this in the constitutional reforms that have been taking place since 1989. This constitution is from the 1980s, uh, 1980. But since several, several reforms have been mainly focused on some civil and political rights, the electoral system, but they haven't been able to target because of the rules of acceptance, the high quora that require these reforms by the Congress. So the, the right wing has kept the key close for constitutional reforms that complete the whole picture of human rights. So this is one factor. And secondly, I think that in terms of institutional practices, I think Chileans, we tended to look the other way around when it comes to the structural deficiencies of the police force, for example, is a military police that is quite uh, autonomous in practice, what they do. So even if formally should be under the control, the political control of the Ministry of Interior and Public Security, in practice has been quite autonomous. And this, in a way, has made that the human rights culture has not permeated the institutional practices of the police. And we have seen this where the protocols have not been followed, where there's reports by Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, on institutional practices of police violence, brutality, including sexual violence, that are very concerning. Um, it, it's a vicious circle, I think, where you have some uh, constitutional gaps in terms of protection of that uh, social equality part that the human rights are also concerned with, but at the same time, institutional practices that have not been culturally influenced by human rights standards. And so that, that I think, has created a, a gap in practice that we are paying now. So we are paying a high price for looking the other way around for many years uh, of not facing no, the structural deficit, uh, mainly of the police when dealing with uh, demonstrations or civil unrest. There have been other protests across Latin America um, in recent months, for example, in Colombia. Do these other protests have anything in common with the demonstrations in Chile? Yeah, I think they have uh, good and bad things in common. <laughs> uh, the good part of the things are in common is that I think there's a widespread, not only in Latin America, but I would say more progressively globally, a kind of uh, clear idea of that people is not willing to accept that just a few um, managed uh, state affairs, uh, both politically and economically. Uh, secondly, sharp inequalities uh, and a feeling of insecurity that is not addressed properly by uh, politics. And thirdly, in the case of Latin America, I would say also this, uh, this specific phenomena that we didn't have before, which is, is not anarchists, actually. It's not even that. It's a worrying role of the narcos, uh, using this social discomfort and social demonstrations to uh, take advantage of chaos and control communities. 
And I can tell you that very clearly. That has happened in Ecuador, it's happening in Colombia, and it's happening in Chile. That's extremely worrying. And in a way, and also this other group of people who is completely disenfranchised. You see young people that went, for example, to the criminal justice system or the protection system. And they say, you, I have nothing to lose. Uh, and you know what? Uh, I feel fine. At least I have the chance to destroy something and belong to, to something in the process. But uh, it concerns me a little bit because I think the public discourse and the response to this has not been addressed nor by governments, nor necessarily so to a deepest level by the human rights movement and the left. So you have, on the one side, government saying, this is chaos, we have to provide public order, uh, protect individual rights and property. And on the other hand, you have human rights movement saying, well, we are against police violence, very abusive use of, of law. But this common factor has been, I guess, overlooked. And it's extremely problematic because if you don't control these groups, and particularly the how the narcos are playing a use in this movement, then what you have uh, is a devaluation of the social movement. You have a progressive sense of insecurity, which might lead to calling the armed forces. So my concern, my personal concern, and many, I guess many others share this concern, is how to make a call for public security in order to avoid the consolidation of a feeling of ungovernment, which might be, you, might be used by the extreme right in the region to say, you see, this is what happens with social demonstrations. You see, more center right-wing governments are incapable to deal with this, so we need a harsher response. And, and you can see that trend in Colombia very clearly. You can see that the Chilean government, particularly the president, has been extremely tempted about this, this line. But I really, if, the, if we don't face this properly, I don't know how long he can hold uh, you know, the pressure from the right wings, who actually what they want is to have the militaries back, at least for a while, and get rid of this, this problem in the ways we, we sadly know. Do you think that the means used to respond to the protests have been proportionate? I think it's a it's extremely dynamic process. So, so it depends on. I could answer this question depending on the week you're asking it. Uh, so, for purpose of trying to to understand what's happening, I would distinguish some things. First, I do believe that it has been demonstrated that the police has been inefficient and ineffective in providing social. Uh, order, no public order. Secondly, there's a, a structural use of uh, human rights violations and uh, lack of effective political control from the government in relation to the to the police mainly. And so th- there's a kind quite well established uh, feeling that there's a disproportionate use of force, and and this has been demonstrated very independently, even by courts but also by human rights institutions and organizations. But secondly, uh, I think that the lack of political intelligence and leadership from the government, the president has been very erratic. And so the political solutions have been very uh, weak in a way. So this in turn has maintained the conflict working mainly for people who doesn't want a solution for the conflict. But the people still requires public order in order to move on and to get 
to the point where everything all started in my in my view, which is that we need a fairer, just society, and that's the whole process of constitutional uh, of moving towards a new constitution. It, unless we don't solve the problem of public security in our countries, when this happened, I think that the the social movement will be substantially compromised, and that's very worrying to moving forward the social agenda that we want to push for. One of the aims of the recent protests has been to secure constitutional change. Could you tell us a bit about why having a new constitution is important to the protesters? Well, I think there are maybe two big reasons behind this movement. First, that it's um, it's a constitution that it will, even if it was accepted, has not been created or designed by the people in Chile. It was designed and imposed by Pinochet in the 1980s. And then it, in a way, was our trade card for our democratic transition. So we have to, in a way, accept that as part of the the better deal we could have probably in the early 90s. But a deal that actually from a perspective of human rights, social social justice, and even from the perspective that the people might feel that the Constitution means something to them, it was a big, big loss. For people, the Constitution is felt, I guess, if not distant to many people, the only knowledge of the Constitution is that it works basically to defend the status quo and to defend the powerful. Uh, it's not seen as, as an instrument of social justice, the protection of human rights. And also, I guess, people is, uh, because social characterization of Chilean, the Chilean society has changed dramatically, I think people is also more empowered, uh, feeling that they don't just don't want to be ruled by a constitution. They want to see that the constitution is their own frame of normative action for the present and the future. And I think that's a, that's a big, big gap present there. How will the politicians go about bringing about this constitutional change? We know that there's likely to be a referendum, but what are the kind of mechanics to get a new constitution? Well, there has been an initial agreement among the political class with the exclusion of the Communist Party and and some sections of... Uh, progressive uh, left-wing uh, movements. But the, the I would say the majority of the political spectrum and society has agreed to this uh, certain track for getting a new constitution. So that in, implies three things. Now the details has been now discussed and the devil, you know, hides in details. <laughs> but uh, I would say first uh, that th- there will be a, a political referendum in April, so people can vote if they want to have a new constitution or not. And if you say yes, you have two options about the mechanism. One is to have a convention, which we call a convención mixta. So it's a convention that is formed by people from the parliament and people elected to that purpose. Or the second option is, is an open convention where people will be elected only for the purposes of designing and and agreeing to a new constitution. They could not run then to the parliament for the next election, so with some restrictions. And then that process would be uh, ratified by a second referendum where people should accept if the the proposal from from this uh, convention is in line with what people think. So this is more or less the, the general track. I think there's clarity about this. But now the details are in many ways, for example, 
uh, some mainly the political parties from the left are uh, pushing for uh, quotas for example women indigenous peoples that may participate there some of us are pushing for allowing and uh, for example that the referendum might be voted by adolescents as well so that the age will be lowered to 16 years of age and also that there might be quotas for adolescents otherwise i mean probably that convention will not have a direct participation of uh, adolescents the other are discussions about how they do reach agreement in terms of uh, which is the uh, the quorum necessary to approve the uh, changes in the constitution and thirdly some debate about if there should be a kind of I mean, the discussion now is that we have to choose a new constitution from the very beginning. So they say it's a, like a open white paper. But at the same time, there are some concerns about, for example, what about basic human rights obligations that the state has already taken under international human rights law, for example? Should we consider that the discussion starts from all treaties uh, adopted by the Chilean government and from then to the top onwards? Or we also discussed that. No? So that is, from a human rights perspective, we could uh, obviously uh, try to uh, expect that, there, that we are not going to start reviewing no, our basic commitments as a country towards international human rights law. Uh, but at the same time, the development of international human rights law has been extremely dynamic. Even uh, uh, cultural rights uh, are these, uh, for me, in a way, they are the base of human rights, but at the same time, these are the kind of debates we, that we have not had in the past in Chile. So I would expect that uh, a convention discusses about the the specific role and extension that you grant, for example, to social rights. I think about, for example, like the South African Constitution. So all these discussions, I think um, we might still to find and strike a balance between uh, not review and uh, basic agreements that we I think there are achievements that if we open to discussion it might be dangerous but at the same time we need to give a space for a real political debate otherwise it will be a facade of convention is the hope to introduce greater protections for human rights or and other other content-based aspirations for the constitutional change so I think there are two aspects in which maybe the the constitution and and the way we think about the future constitution are relevant first um there's a as a, in all constitutions there's a definition of who you are and this definition is extremely important i think the part of the detachment of people with the constitution in chile is that they haven't participated in this discussion huh? who we are how you see yourself from a normative point of view Know, as moral philosophers discuss, so is this that uh, which is the, what is the ontological description of who we are, and the normative expectations that we put in the constitution? So, for example, the Chilean constitution until now has a very precise definition of a state that only intervenes if the market fails or the private sector fails. So it's a subsidiary role. Solidarity is not a constitutional principle in the Chilean constitution. I do believe that solidarity has to be a constitutional principle, along with freedom and equality. It's one stronger vision that we have a common cause. I think this is at the heart of the discussion, more structurally. And secondly, 
two things that are specifically related with the Constitution as it stands today. First, I would say uh, the importance of social rights, social and cultural rights. So, for example, Chile is a country which does not recognize indigenous peoples in the Constitution. It's a Constitution that does not even recognize the rights of the child. Uh, and social rights are very weakly uh, identified. And that obviously makes the role of the, of the constitutional tribunal mainly a role of the guardian of the market and the private property or, in the best of the cases, civil and political rights, but not social rights. So I think one big, big fight and struggle will be to enshrine second or third generation rights. Water, I think, will be at the heart of the discussion. Housing. And secondly, in the specific part of the regulations, a more participatory political system. Because, for example, there's no public initiative to create a law in Chile. So that means that only the president or members of the Congress, but always it's a very strong presidential system. The people feel detached from the legal process entirely. So I think that to have more direct and participatory spaces of uh, framing laws, uh, deciding at the local level what they think. There, in general, this has been a, a very important gap in the political system. So I think that in the definition of what kind of society who we are, and secondly, in terms of rules, a stronger concern and recognition of social rights and second and third generation rights, and also a more democratic participatory political system, which might in turn help to diminish the strong gap between the politics and the daily lives of peoples. If we just turn now to think about the impact of the situation in Chile on children and young people's rights and what might be done to strengthen those in the future, how is the unrest across the country affecting children's rights? Well, this is a very sad uh, part of, and concerning part of the, of the process. I would say there are two levels. Uh, first, there has been many reports of police violence against children and particularly adolescents in the case of social demonstrations, but all, also quite widespread and irrational use, for example, of chemical projectiles and use of that to this population that, for example, are affecting schools. And you will see children running with uh, the smoke and things like that. So you have children affected, their health uh, directly by this. Secondly, I feel concerned. So I'm worried. I am stressed. You are listening, reading, following Twitter, and you, this creates a stress on you. Imagine in the case of children. So I think that there has been a strong concern that uh, all this tension and news and conversations in the family obviously creates a stress in children. So I think this is a very concerning stuff. And I also think that we as an adults are not been trained in a way to how to cope with stress, with political stress with your children. Until now, Chileans were, it was a quite tranquil. I mean, it was, this was not part of the problem. But nowadays, I can imagine that even parents don't have enough capacities or instruments to how to deal with this. But the, the other part is also that uh, there's a, maybe the greatest opportunity that we have in terms of not only saying, how what is wrong with the state and children but what could be right with the state and children and that is where 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 i think that we have a huge opportunity to uh, recognize children in the constitution i would say their rights in the constitution not only children 
And to allow that, this might be the first constitutional process where you can clearly see children taking place in the framing of that constitution. And that doesn't mean only to have your article who says best interest of the child, but also in the process itself. That means participatory intervention of children and adolescents that might shape the kind of discussion that we are having about the constitution. Because I think this is very important. We as adults, when I think about the Constitution, I think about principles, rights, no? rules that allow give powers, immunities, etc. But if you ask a child, uh, what do you think the Constitution is? Well, I want to be able to be happy, that people love each other, that people can say whatever they think they want or they express themselves. This is a way of building constitutions as well, you know, and understanding rights. So if, if we miss this opportunity to include children and adolescents in the process, we will miss a big, big opportunity, not only to repeat the kind of constitutions that we already know, that the possibility to have a new constitution that we have never had before. So this is the, the importance of children in that process. That's so interesting, the, the role that children could play in designing a constitution. I think that there's a sort of a widespread understanding these days that the legitimacy of a constitution is not uh, only or even mainly given by the constitutional rules themselves, but by the process by virtue of which you agree on those rules. And if children are uh, social agents, political agents, as I do believe they are, as the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child recognizes, well, they also have to see the Constitution as something that they they feel that there's a transgenerational uh, legitimacy about this. It's not only given, but they have a say in. And also, um, some constitutional rules that may allow next generations, future generations of children to continue participating. And this is mainly the right of children. And that they, in all things, and all matters that involve them and affect them, they need to be heard and taken into account. Our political process doesn't consider that. But you, you have the lobby and the pressure from all other kind of groups. But when it comes to children, this is extremely poor. Uh, so I, I think that uh, we will have a more friendly, child-friendly constitution. Uh, that's my expectation. But I'm uh, more dubious that uh, that uh, we will be as a result of a process of participation in the, the constitutive moment. And I would expect that that is something that we have to uh, reach. I think that maybe goes back to what you were saying about the constitution forming part of the identity of the nation and who the, who the nation is. And obviously the future of the nation is the children and the young people. Um, so if it sounds like participation would go some way towards achieving that identification with the values of the constitution. Yes, absolutely. And I think our responsibility also as human rights defenders is to move on forward to the kind of debates I think children deserve, which is uh, what kind of uh, society you dream of, which kind of family, which kind of relationship with your parents you want to have, uh, and how make more participatory political system for children. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me and congratulations always to the work of the Human Rights Hub in Oxford. Thank you. 
Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Our executive producer is Kira Allman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Natasha Holcroft Emmis. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman, and Sarah Dobby does our show notes. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.